ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਫਤਿਹ ਸੋ ਆਈ ਹੈਵ ਅ ਸੋ ਥਰਡ ਟੁਡੇ ਟੂ ਮੈਨੀ ਪਕੋੜਾਸ ਸੋ ਗੋਇੰਗ ਟੂ ਬੀ ਅ ਲੋਟ ਆਫ ਥਰਡ ਕਲੀਅਰਿੰਗ ਇਨਵੋਲਵਡ ਐਨੀਹਾਊ ਵਾਟ ਡੂ ਯੂ ਸੇ ਥੈਟ ਓਵਰ ਦਾ ਪਾਸਟ 80 90 ইয়ার্স ਵੀ ਹੈਵ ਗਰੋਇੰਗ ਯੂਜ਼ ਟੂ ਸਚ ਅ ਹਿਸਟਰੀ ਆਫ ਇਨਕੰਪੀਟੈਂਟ ਲੀਡਰਸ਼ਿਪ ਦੈਟ ਟੁਡੇ ਵੀ really expect our leaders to be incompetent subconsciously somehow and excuse their uh, even their most basic of flaws which eventually end up damning us well uh how do this this question alone deserves a 20 minute answer <laughs> well, if you were if you were to summarize it into a few effective paragraphs how would you say it how would you give the statement that are we really that used to uh incompetency that we expected as a rule as a norm rather than a expect exception to the rule well uh would you agree if i say that you can only expect competency if you are competent yes, yourself yes yes that's that's what i was eventually getting it because we can't hold our leadership to a high standard today because we can't hold ourselves to a high standard today so you have answered your Pretty own question like then you have saved me 20 minutes you have <laughs> saved me 20 minutes i just want your minutes. opinion on the matter to be honest it's it's good if someone else reinforces you <laughs> because, because, yep a single yeah, sentence answer what i yep. learned in psychology was that you can rarely see yourself or imagine yourself making a decision or how you make that decision so it's always good to have someone else uh, observe your thought process your thinking process who can give you more of a impartial analysis on whether you're going the right way or the wrong way but no thank you for that that ties in with the greater issue we have for today and that is the leadership lessons from the life of nawab kapoor singh who as we know who proved a pivotal figure during one of the darkest eras of the Khalsa's existence and this was during the post guru era uh so the background is that Banda Singh Bahadur was betrayed by the Sikhs Banda Singh Bahadur was eventually killed uh there was a mass vilification of his character nonetheless Sikhs gathered and uh realized that they had been played by the Mughals there had been sleeper agents in their ranks all along nothing new So they decided to retreat into the forests uh, the jungles of North India from where they fought the Mughals for 30 years around this time we had the issue of Bhai Tara Singh Wan who uh, actually took on a their uh now Tara Singh Wan just as a sideline Zakaria Khan was a genocidal maniac there's no denying the fact that he uh, carried out quite a quite a massive multi-pronged genocide of the Sikhs which was more or less consistent even though at times he would stop it <clears throat> and one of the means of uh, genocide which uh, people today do not really regard is economic genocide and uh, if i say economic genocide people really believe that it's uh, driving a certain community certain group into poverty which it is by design however just as effective as another strategy which is causing divisions in that group on the basis of economics so what zakaria khan did was he decided that if local sikhs individual independent sikh warriors 
where to start accepting pension from the state and settle down, he would have no problem with them. And the state would uh, sort of employ them as, uh, I guess the best way to say it would be as mercenary policemen, <clears throat> given what the situation on the highways was like at the time. And Tara Singh Van was obviously one of these individuals. Anyhow, some of the Sikhs around, who lived around him, they were harassed by a Chaudhary who threatened to cut their cash. Tarasin gathered a group of other Sikhs around him. They took on the Chaudhary. They took on 200 soldiers from Lahore. And after this, the Khalsa actually stepped up its uh, warfare against Lahore, against Zakaria. Ultimately, Zakaria decided upon a new strategy. <clears throat> now, the strategy was two-pronged. We need to understand that because by this time Delhi was beginning to decentralize, the Mughal emperor was only a nominal figurehead at the most. But the emperor had a concern that he needed to save his power, his office somehow. And to do this, the emperor was very suspicious of anyone who he believed to show quite a lot of initiative. And Zakaria was one of these individuals. And he was also the Subedar of Lahore. So Zakaria knew that, you know, let's face it, Zakaria, as per historic records, was a pretty corrupt bastard. He was always pocketing money on the side. And he knew that if the emperor decided to actually open the accounts, he would be screwed anyway. And then on the other hand was the Sikh problem, because, you know, Sikhs being guerrilla fighters, they were pretty hard to corner for his uh, regular forces. So he decided that uh, step one, he would actually send uh, Shabag Singh. Now, Shabag Singh was a low-caste builder who had risen to great prominence in Lahore, and he had only recently converted to Sikhi. So Zakaria didn't see him as being, you know, overtly dangerous, given that he was a Sikh, but not in, you know, connection, not in touch with other Sikhs. And he gave him a letter of, uh, you know, a ceasefire with a little offer in there for the Khalsa, at the same time, he wrote another letter to the emperor in Delhi to tell him that, look, I'm just trying to negotiate with the Sikhs so I can bring them out and finally slay them. This way, he wanted to uh, absolve himself of two situations so he could hold the emperor off and he could hold the Sikhs off. And yes, that so <clears throat> what we need to realize down here is that Zakaria's position was very uh, contentious at the most. He was stuck it could have precipitated his uh, political and his, even his life uh, a very early uh, premature dem demise for him. So he was prone to you know, being quite anxious. He suffered from anxiety about what the future held. Now, this issue of the offer, the ceasefire offer, now when Shabir Singh actually reached out to the Khalsa leadership at the time, at the time there were two leaders in the Khalsa, there was Pai Mani Singh, and then there was Baba Darbara Singh. Now, what these two had done, they had realized that after Banda, the Sikhs weren't in a strong position. Banda Singh had been right that if the Sikh state was extinguished, the Sikhs would be torn asunder. So they divided the militant Khalsa into four companies of 200 each. So we had up to 800 uh, Sikh fighters in total. And they would be divided into four companies. So this meant that uh, 200 would remain near the Shivalik Hills. Another would be, you know, in the jungles around Lahore. Another would be in Maja, while the fourth was more or less a quick reaction force. So, you know, dividing up in 
running to help whichever of the other companies required assistance. And uh, this was a tactic copied from Bandar Singh Bahadur, who sort of had his... Um, see, what made the Sikhs so tactically smart, the military acumen, why it was so great was because the way the Khalsa force had been designed by Guru Gobind Singh, it could sort of start dividing on the same pattern as the Western military system. So you had a platoon, you had a company, you had a brigade, you had a battalion. So you had quite a lot of, uh, you know, different um, divisions going on. So nonetheless, we have these four divisions. And the way these divisions are led is that the veterans who lead them are known as Akalis. And these Akalis, a majority are from Guru Gobind Singh Ji's time. Then you have the Nihangs. Now the Nihangs are, you know, just the normal Sikh youth, men and women trained to fight and they are rotating. So, you know, two months they will be on service, two months they will be back in their uh, homes, two months someone else will take over. And their main ba base was around Dwaba and the Punjabi marshland and Amritsar. So they were very uh, highly mobile, always moving around. And what happens is that Zakaria has a bit of a military success. His Muslim irregulars and Hindu irregulars fall on Sikh villages and there is a genocidal massacre of the Sikhs. Now, they return to Lahore and they demand a triumph in the same pattern as Roman triumphs from Zakaria. And Zakaria is more than happy to arrange this, but because they are very superstitious, they ask astrologers to uh, identify a good day for when they can enter into Lahore for their, you know, parade. And the astrologers give them a day, which is still a bit far away. And you know what happens next? Tell me. They become arrogant and very overconfident that they've wiped out the Sikhs. So they set up camp away from Lahore in the open, no guards, nothing, eating their way through, you know, the food provided by the locals, drunk and just, you know, being arrogant, uh, I would say the word I'd use down here is quite a colloquial, arrogant butt wipes. That's what I'd say. Anyhow, it was too good an opportunity for, you know, their Barasing to resist. So what happens is all four companies collate of the militant Khalsa, 800 Sikhs. What happens is they stealthily ring their regulars main camp. And then with a sudden dash, 400 enter the camp and start slaying the... Uh, you know, I would say, apophatic foe. So what happens is that those who can fight back, fight back, but the majority rush outside the camp. But the direction they rush in, the Sikhs have already dug trenches down there and they unleash heavy firepower from their muskets and cannons. So it's, it's generally speaking, a rout, a massive rout. And there is pandemonium throughout the Punjab. So this is why Zakaria decides that, you know, I really need to step up the game and negotiate with the Sikhs. So this is just the background to what led to, you know, Nawab Kapoor Singh becoming Nawab. So when this offer actually goes down there to the Sikhs, it's a, it's a very cleverly designed offer. He actually wants them to fight among themselves for the right to be Nawab. Well, of course, it, it, it was, how do I say that? Uh, it's like throwing a bone to the yes. dogs. They're just yep. fighting among themselves. And it's, 
well, at least that what that, yes, that's what yes, he thought. that's what he thought. And that was actually now you need to remember Zakaria actually used to refer to the Sikhs as dogs when Banda Singh Bhadra was arrested, uh, taken to Delhi. They had these massive uh, cages built for the Sikhs. He used to have a habit. He used to take a roti, a single roti, a piece of bread, and just throw it into these cages, which held maybe up to. 40, 50 Sikhs. And what used to happen is that, you know, the Sikhs used to throw this roti one to the other, to the other, to the other. And then the last member who used to have it, he used to spit in it and throw it back at Zakaria. So Zakaria used to see the Sikhs as animals. And that's that was nothing new down there. At the time, Sikhs were seen as being, you know, animals by uh, caste Hindus and uh, Muslims as well. So this offer is designed like this, that, you know, the Sikhs don't have uh, the nobility, the Sikhs don't have the acumen, the skill, the intellect required to choose a Nuab. And they will start fighting among themselves for the honor of being Nuab. I will have them divided from the start. They will come out into the open fighting among themselves. And all I have to do is just ring Amritsar and finish them off. That was his plan. <clears throat> But there was a big problem down here. See, when Shabag Singh enters, Subag Singh enters that Sikh camp, he gives the offer to Darbara Singh. And Darbara Singh stands up and reads it aloud to the Sangat. Now, there is a Sangat involved. The way the system worked was that after Banda Singh, it was realized that, you know, the Sikhs had to sort of set up a fluid governmental institute somehow so issues can be addressed. And Darbara Singh read it aloud to a select Sangat who was, you know, uh, which consisted of veterans from the Guru's time and otherwise who had the, who were perceived as having the skill required for diplomatic negotiation. So he did not dismiss it outright, but he read it out to the Sangat and they started uh, debating it among themselves. And, uh, the initial concern they, has, they had was that it would induct autocracy among the Panth. That, you know, we will have dictatorship, we will have despotism, we will have, you know, the rule of one individual. The Khalsa can't do that because the Khalsa is obviously Republican. And nor was that offer of amnesty genuine. Now, this is something I guess I know you would want to comment on. They don't have a psychic mind, but they're still able to say that that offer from Zakaria is not genuine. And <laughs> you come down to the times of Master Tara Singh, Sant Fateh Singh, just see how <laughs> they were given similar offers and they fell for them only to realize later when it was too late that they were never genuine. Well, let's say that uh, back then, if the offer was more genuine, let's mm. say, they still wouldn't no, have they taken. wouldn't have taken it. There was, there was a healthy amount of suspicion on their side as to why this sudden change in manner. And the Sikhs knew their strength. Now, you know, one of the biggest things a commander can do, and it's, it's not always easy, only a few commanders in history, a few military commanders, a few political leaders, a few social leaders, trailblazers, have had the guts to admit their own weaknesses. Oh, there are far too many of them, and uh, there are oh, like very, very few who actually admitted that, yeah, that we indeed yes, made some mistakes. But when you're in that position, you need to be able to preempt your own mistakes. And I mean, that explains a lot. That explains a lot 
in history today. I mean, if you look at Alexander the Great, you look at Genghis Khan, you look at many similar types of leaders, you will see that they were always preempting their own weaknesses and own mistakes. They never overcommitted to anything. Darbara Singh was aware of this, that, you know, the Sikhs had no generous strength if it really came to them fighting the Mughals in a pitched battle on the outside. It would be a massacre. They had already witnessed one massacre of the Sikhs just a few months prior, and that's why Zakaria, you know, was writing that letter to them. Anyhow, when Darbara Singh was arguing against accepting the offer, it is said that by Mani Singh suddenly stood up. And Mani Singh and his supporters basically had had a talk among themselves and they said, look, we are happy if this offer is accepted, even though we know it's perfidious. Now, everyone became curious all of a sudden that why are you guys saying that, you know, let's accept this even though we know it's false. Now, Mani Singh articulated how, you know, Guru Gobind Singh had given the Sikhs Banda, but Banda had been betrayed by the Sikhs as a result of Sikh folly, and the Sikhs had been driven into the wildness as a result. Even though the Khalsa was, you know, a fraternity of equals, it was necessary for there to be a structure of authority within it. And if you look at it, Banda Singh had retained a veteran five-man senatorial council to check his powers while informing him of the Khalsa's aspirations. And Mani Singh proposed that the Khalsa, you know, emulating those same principles, it should elect a Nuab for the Panth, but that Nuab should be acting on the same lines as Banda. So what essentially he was saying was that the Sikh Nuab, in contrast to the Mughal counterpart, would be the highest servant of the Panth rather than ruler. So a voice rather than a ruler. And he would also be subject to a nascent Senate ratified by the collective Panth. So his authority would be invested in him by the Khalsa for the Khalsa. He would be elected by the Senate, which in turn would be elected by the Sikhs themselves. This hierarchy would avoid ochlocracy in face of the Sikhs expanding numbers. So what ochlocracy is that in a democracy, when everyone stops you know, respecting authority, then there is no uh, direction, no uh, mission to pursue. So, for example, if you're the prime minister and people stop respecting you as a prime minister, they decide to do away with prime ministry altogether. They decide to do away with all leadership altogether. That's when we have a chaotic, uh, chaotic crisis, as I would call it. So that's, that's what had to be avoided. And this Nuab would ensure the implementation of whatever course the Senate chose. So it was quite a complex system for the times, but it was also fluid as well in that, that uh, the decision-making process would be very swift. And well, yeah. well, you, you, in, in this case, you have to remember that this system was the need of the it time. It was the need of the time. And I guess the biggest thing which was going at that time in Pai Mani Singh's mind and the Sangat's mind was that, look, we are expanding, we are growing, we are focusing on territorial growth, political growth, social growth. <clears throat> I guess uh, the example I'd give is a relevant example. You know how the Northern Alliance and the Taliban and even you know, Bin Laden's uh, embryonic Al-Qaeda fought against the Russians back in the 80s? Whenever yep. the question of what would happen to Afghanistan, what the you know, political structure would be after they kicked out the Russians, 
was brought up, it was always shelved for a later date. Now, ultimately, when the Russians decided to leave, guess what happened? Infighting. Infighting. Now, we have the Taliban saying they want a theocracy. We have Ahmad Shah Massoud saying that he wants a, uh, would get, I would say, a constitutional monarchy. And, you know, obviously, bin Laden had his own thoughts on the matter. So to avoid this type of infighting, that's why they decided, the Sikhs decided, the Khalsa at the time decided that, look, we need to choose a proactive and a performing system now. So in the future, we don't rip each other to shreds. So, yep. And the, the example you just gave of the Soviets and uh, the Northern mm. Alliance and the Taliban, you have to remember that when the Russians withdrew and the Soviet Union mm. broke up and everything, the new Russian Federation in 1991 actually, I, I would say, overtly helped Ahmad Shah against Taliban. Mm, mm, mm. So they helped their old enemy, which might have killed thousands of their boys in Afghanistan. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, you have a point. You have a very strong point. You see, a, you see a similarity? Yep, I see a similarity. Yeah. And hmm. also, uh, you have to remember that Amr Shah was killed on 10th of September 2001. A day before the 9-11. Yes, he was. Uh, 9-11, yes, he was killed. Uh, what they did was they actually had photographers, uh, Al-Qaeda operatives uh, disguised as photographers. He brought a camera and then uh, I believe that camera actually exploded right in his face. Well, that was the last flash you saw. Yep, that was the last flash. Because I guess if Ahmad Shah had been alive after 9-11, he would have left no stone unturned in, you know, taking over uh, Afghanistan in the hunt for bin Laden. He was a man who actually knew bin Laden from the inside out. He, he was actually, uh, I was reading that, you know, they used to say he was bin Laden's second mind. He was so conversant with how bin Laden operated. But anyway, at the end, <clears throat> his loss was, a, I guess, quite a significant defeat for the Americans. Anyhow, now, when we get back to the Sikhs, the question was, who would be this Nwab, this governor, the successor to Banda Singh? And the first issue was that, you know, the Sangat, the council members were too well-aged and they made no secret of the fact that, you know, some of them were pretty well entrenched in their uh, views. They required someone who could, you know, sort of adapt to the times. So they pretty much articulated the fact that we need a young person, a youth, who could step into, you know, Banda Singh's mantle. Such a youth had to be conversant with the need for change while, you know, obviously preserving and implementing the Pant's aspirations. He slash she had to be concomitant with the times while, you know, also being steadfastly attached to Sikhi. So Ratan Singh Pangu and what has gone into oral tradition, what that tells us is that, you know, prior to casting around, they decided to take a Hukam Nama. And the Hukam Nama from the Guru Granth Sahib, when it was read out, now there is a bit of a debate as to which passage exactly was read out. But the gist of it was that whoever does selfless seva, that person is worthy to be honored by the Sangat of self-enlightened, self-awakened beings. And at this time, there was a young man who was heavily wounded with a scarred face. His name was Kapoor Singh, and he was actually doing the, he was fanning the Sangats. 
And suddenly the council's gaze fell upon him. And Mani Singh inquired as to who he was. And they said, look, this is Kapoor Singh. Now, <clears throat> the first thing down here I'd like to highlight is that, you know, we say that Kapoor Singh used to do Korea di Seva, you know, look after the Khalsa's horses, uh, shovel their manure. <clears throat> and we have always held this up to be a sign of his humility. There is nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if you think about it, yeah. No, no, no. If no, you no. think about it, no. if you think the word humility is yes. overused. <clears throat> but if you today, the word humility means weakness. Yes, you're right on that as well. If you think about it, though, he was doing Korea this ever. It said he had a prominent role in that. You know what the first thing which would have gone through the council's mind would have been that if he's able to, you know, do all these things without letting up in his duty, without letting up on the field of battle, this man or this boy must be a good organizer. Well, they must have seen quite a few things in him. And uh, if you are, uh, let's say, an old Sikh commander, a veteran Sikh commander, you always are on the lookout to look for new recruits, new, new officers, new leaders. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> So it, it it cannot be just one single incident. It cannot no, no, be. no. And I believe that his organizational skills, which have been downplayed today, would have made him quite a quite a prime candidate for what they were actually considering at the time. So what I mean by exceptional organizational skill is that, you know, here's a person working in the stables. He's charged with looking after the horses. This is no easy duty. I mean, you have some horses which need to be taken for war, some which, you know, need to be taken for travel. You need to ensure that they are well-fed, they're healthy. You need more horses. You need to acquire more horses. It can be very overwhelming. I mean, today we have people in leadership roles in the military and in the business world, even in the political world, having breakdowns and just, you know, leaving office because the organizational aspect the time management aspect is always dragging them down. Yep. That was point one, which I believe would have actually convinced them that this is the man we need. Now, if you look at some other things, now getting back to the story, Kapoor Singh refused and then he actually agreed and he had the, you know, five Panjapiare tread on the symbols of office, which Zakaria Khan had actually uh, you know, gifted to whoever would be the Nawab to reflect that, you know, the Panj were the highest voice of the Panth and he would be under the Panth. So he was not, you know, actually wearing any uh, royal symbols as far as he was concerned, but symbols given to him, you know, by the Panth's power. <clears throat> Anyhow, we also know that uh, Kapoor Singh wasn't the same as Zakaria and the fact that he was autocratic. He was actually very democratic and, uh, he listened to everyone. So he set up these institutions, these systems where, you know, at the very least, the masses wouldn't feel that they were left out in the decision-making uh, decision process. And this was something quite crucial because if you look at the Banda Sangero, there was that issue that many individuals felt he had eclipsed them. So that's why they decided to stab him in the back. Yep, true. Now, what happens is that Kapoor Singh's first thing 
his first course of action is, as we discussed in one of the last episodes, was that he actually sent the young Sikhs out in Amritsar, which was made part of the Khalsa territory, to actually start rioting and fighting among themselves. So when these Sikh youth, when the Sikh youth did this, the authorities took no steps to prevent it. And quite a lot of the younger Sikhs grew pretty hot-headed, thinking as he dropped there, you know, we have actually made them afraid into submission. We have, you know, struck the fear of God in their hearts. And they reported to Kapoor Singh that there is nothing to fear. The Mughals are scared of us. And Kapoor Singh told them, okay, look, desist from what you're doing. Come back into the jungles. And uh, some of the leaders actually asked him, well, you know, what was the point behind this, you know, entire strategy? And he told them that, look, the fact they aren't acting, they're planning something really big for us. And a very simple, I guess but this was effective a, technique to 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 coach your yep, enemy. And this was a great sense of foresight on his part. This would actually come to define him later. He would actually uh, share this foresight once again, and prevent the Panth from committing itself to a you know course which would have ultimately annihilated it. Now, early 1734, Darbara Singh dies. Darbara Singh had uh, emerged as his military mentor, and on the other hand. Kapoor Singh has a problem. So in March 1734, he announces a Sarbat Khalsa at Amritsar. The problem he has that the Sikhs have increased in number. Obviously, he set up uh, institutions which actually, you know, test Sikhs that, you know, if they want to become Amritsar, enter the Khalsa, are they genuine or not? He's not too concerned about that side of things. His main concern is that he's got non-combatants, he's got combatants, he needs to somehow divide them while also keeping in mind the fact that the Khalsa is intending to rule over the Punjab. So it has to be mobile while at the same time remaining in contact with each other while also avoiding the foe. So this was quite a big uh, duty he had, a big um, vision he had. And this is once again where his organizational skill comes to the fore. He decided that the Panth would be demarcated into two bodies. So the first one would be the Buddhadal, and the second one would be the Tarnadal. Now, contrary to popular belief, the Buddhadal was actually led by Kapoor Singh himself, Sham Singh, Gurbaksh Singh, Pag Singh, and Gurdial Singh. Its main recruits would be, you know, veteran fighters, veteran generals, uh, men 40 years or older, women and children, and the intellectuals and, you know, preachers of the Panth. So this would be the Buddhadal. And the Buddha Dal's primary mission would be, as far as war was concerned, that if it really needed to, it would help the other body, which I'd get to soon. But mainly, it would wage that hearts and minds campaign throughout the Punjab, you know, winning people's hearts and minds. <clears throat> the other body he made was the Tarnadal. And this was led by Deep Singh, who was from the Guru Gobind Singh era, obviously. Taram Singh, the Sonda Singh, Beer Singh, Rangreta, and Jeevan Singh Rangreta. It would focus on military strategy, guerrilla warfare, recruitment for military purposes, and the defense of far-flung Sikh populace in the Punjab's rural belt. <clears throat> so this was the Dal system. This was where the term Khalsa Dal or Dal Khalsa came from. Now, if you look at it, if the Buddha Dal and Tarna Dal were under attack, they could divide into two subdals. If not, they could divide themselves further. So 
Kapoor Singh could take off on his own way, Sham Singh on his own, Gurbrak Singh on his own, etc. So the Sikhs could never be cornered. That's what effectively he ensured that the Dals would function as. <clears throat> and obviously we have the Sarbat Khalsa as the Sikh referendum, which he articulated would be held in Amritsar, but if not in Amritsar, it could be held anywhere where the Khalsa collated in a majority. Obviously, he articulated his own role as the Pant's political paterfamilias, as a president, <clears throat> and his fellow commanders, Mani Singh and several others would form the Khalsa Senate. Their positions were to be elective rather than hereditary, and even he could be voted out of office if he was found wanting. <clears throat> and the Kal Takht was obviously identified as the main Sikh Senate. So, yes. Singh? <clears throat> How many pakoras have you eaten? <laughs> quite a lot. Quite a lot. <laughs> one, one too many, many, it seems. But anyhow, <laughs> and I guess one thing I'd also say down here, back in the day, they the Sikhs had very strong bodies because Langar wasn't what it is today. No, no, no. Today's one, I will admit it, is poison. It... Yep. There today. is paneer clogging arteries. There is too much oil, too much butter. Back in Wab Kapoor Singh's days, they had pretty firm rock-like bodies because Langar was just a few chole and that was it. Well, you also have to remember that uh, the Langar today, because today itself, you, you can just go to any road in Punjab. You, you have the Langar hmm. for the Hula Malla. Yes. Yeah? So you have a massive supply chain and everything. Yes. This is peacetime, yeah? So back in those days, you didn't have farmlands to grow the, uh, the, the supplies for. You couldn't grow wheat, you couldn't mm. grow anything because you were constantly on the move. So whatever was available to you, that was the longer. That was it. And I guess you need to look at it this way. Nwab Kapoor Singh was also the foremost langrai of the Panth. He had to ensure that the logistics always matched up with what was going on. Uh, okay, since we have discussed all this, uh, there was one point, I think, uh, I can't remember where I had read it, but I think we would agree with, yes. agree with this, that you, you as a leader should live long enough to see the consequences <clears throat> of your yes, actions. Yes, yes. So it makes sense to make leaders out of people who are not too old. Hmm. I mean, if you look at it, mid-1734, around that time when the Chota Kalukara happens, now when Pai Mani Singh is arrested, before Pai Mani Singh is arrested, before the Kalukara actually transpires, we have the execution of Pai Mani Singh. Pai Mani Singh, we know, was, you know, obviously arrested for Mamritsar because he had actually learned that you what the luck what Lakpatrai and Jaspatrai were preparing to do with Zakari and Toh. And he had, you know, ensured that the Sikhs had escaped. He sent a message to Nwab Kapoor Singh, primarily telling him what the situation was. Nwab Kapoor Singh could have easily come into Amritsar and decided to make his last stand from the Darbar Sahib, but he didn't. That's, that's some strong food for thought. He didn't. That is very strong photo. There, there isn't death or victory. There is total planning. Hmm. 
there is title planning. And then if you look at on the other side of things, Kapoor Singh was also someone who was daily, continually training new leaders to replace him. This is how Jassa Singhalu Walia came into the mix. Yep, yep. That's something you, you, you always, always need to do. They always should be a chain of command, yeah, a chain of leaders to replace the, one another in case somebody... Yep, the past 80, 90 years, what we have seen is that we have never had the chain of command. Everyone is in the race to die, but there is no one in the race to succeed. Well, no, because fighting is easy. <laughs> Leading people and devising plan and using your brain, that's <clears> hard. Yep, and... Uh, you know, not everything is based on rhetoric. I mean, if you start judging leaders solely on rhetoric, that's a recipe for disaster. And overall, on the other hand, when he's actually, when Kapoor Singh is actually cornered by Jaspatrai, Lakpatrai, the Buddha Dal and Tarna Dal divisions, they operate quite professionally and he's able to actually push them away so there is a few battles down there where the dals get together and then divide and you know sort of get out of the way then obviously we have the chotaka lukara again kapoor singh's leadership genius is on full display and what happens is that he's actually able to you know lead the punt to the chotaka lukara and no one questions his leadership at the time that, you know, he got so many people killed. That's something I've always been thinking about, why no one questioned him at the time. Well, uh, the question couldn't, couldn't have been this way, that you got our people killed. People might have thought that he managed to save so many of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I believe there was a transparent... You, you see yes. the difference here? The focus is not that you got so many people killed, but she, of course, didn't. The focus was that through, through his leadership, so many of us survived this excellently planned emotion. Mm-hmm. It could be an ambush. Yeah, it could be called an ambush. I yeah. guess there would have been a transparency now. True, like, you know, one of the things I've learned in the private sector is that a long time ago, I had a job where I was never given the full picture. Like most of us were never given the full picture. And we were never able to perform as we were expected to perform because we didn't really know what we were aiming for ultimately. I guess in Kapoor Singh's case, the thing was that he actually made very transparent what the Panth was aiming for. And if you look at it during the Chota Kalukara, the aim would have been to survive. Alongside would have been the knowledge that this is a daily occurrence. They want to wipe us out because of who we are. He would never have uh, glossed it over as it happens today. I mean, today, if Zakaria Khan had been around, he would surely have gotten a seropa when he had announced that ceasefire. The Sikhs back then did nothing of the sort. They were very good judges of character. And they understood the times as well, that, you know, we aim to rule over the Punjab. No one is going to allow it. We have to fight for it. So then what happens is afterwards, we have, you know, incidents with the Dina Beg Khan. We have quite a lot of uh, massacres of Sikhs going on. And in all this, Kapoor Singh actually emerges as a leader who is unscathed. The Panth still trusts him. And none of it is his fault. But you need to sort of consider what sort of leadership his would have been 
that no one ever raised a question against him. <clears throat> well, that's something we need to ponder about. What made him so effective that people decided, look, we will follow him even into death? Or maybe he led by examples. You know, he was pro he was proven to be correct and wise multiple times on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Now, after all these incidents transpire, we come down to the fact that he's again showing his organizational skill. He divided the Buddha Dal Tarnadal into twenty five subdals. After that, probably came the most glorious period we know we recognize him for. <clears throat> he decided that he had to divide the Khalsa into more than one body. Now, if you consider this fact, here was the thing. The Khalsa wanted to rule over the Punjab, but rather than choose one man to rule over the entire Punjab, you know, a monarch, it was decided that we need a Republican form of a system. Now, remember, they don't even know what a Republic is. They have no idea of what a modern republic should be like. Maybe they have heard tales of past republics in Indian history, but they sure as hell don't know what the Western concept of the system is like. They do not know that in America there is a similar sentiment going on. They don't probably even know that uh, something called America exists. Anyhow, look, look, no, no, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't but look at the coincidence down here is that he has trained other leaders as well while he's been fighting all these times. So what he does is he actually sits down and he decides that, look, I can't last for much longer. I mean, it, the entire uh, office of Nwab Giri and, you know, him becoming a president and thinking up these new and innovative systems, these new institutions, he, it had taken quite a considerable toll on him his health and his uh, mental well-being, I guess. And he decided that he would step down soon enough. But at his last public appearance as Nawab <clears throat> at a Sarbat Khalsa in Amritsar, he decided to do something. <clears throat> he told the Panth about the future, which would be led by the Gyara missiles, 11 missiles. <clears throat> so the Dal Khalsa would be divided into missiles, which would act as confederacies, states, as well as military bodies. So obviously we had Aluvalia under just uh, under Jasa Singh Aluvalia. He took over temporary command of the Singapuria, Sukarchaki under Charat Singh, Nishan Avliya <clears throat> as the bearer of the Khalsa's battle standards, Pangi under Hari Singh, Pangi, Kanaya under J under Jay Singh, Nakai under under Hira Singh, Dalavalia under Gulab Singh and, you know, Akali uh, or Shaheed under Deep Singh. And then there was Krora Singhia led by Krora Singh and the Fulkia led by Allah Singh. So these 11 missiles would form the Dal Khalsa, which then transformed into a political body, I would say into the Sikh Republic, as well as the Sikh Central Command. And what convinced him to do this was the fact that the people of the Punjab had been taken in by his Hearts and Minds campaign, and they wanted the Sikhs to rule over them. The people. The people. Uh, would, would, you, okay. would you say that uh, 
okay, this thing might have been going in his brain for a long time, yeah? Mm. The, the very first observation is that Punjab is a large yes. land. Well, unlike today, a very large geographical yes. area. We are small mm. in numbers. We do not have the resources or the necessary resources required to take over such a large territory. Yep. What's the best way to approach our, our aim? Yes, yes, it would have been going on in his brain. Yep, and, and also, uh, let me give you an example that I think that most listeners can link to. The example of Chanakya meeting uh, Chandragupta yep. Morya. Well, not meeting, coming across, he was just, just walking on his way, and he saw a young Chandragupta Morya playing with, let's say, kids of mm. his own age, and his leadership impressed yep. him. So by giving this example, I'm saying that even Kapoor Singh would have <clears> kept a constant eye on maybe, let's say, young Sikhs, or maybe who was like 12, 13, 14, 16-year-old kids. That, well, does this guy have a quality? How, ca how can this guy contribute to the bump? Maybe this guy is a better fighter, this guy is a better leader, this guy is a better mm -hmm. manager, this guy is good with logistics. Mm -hmm. so, so this thing is constantly going on his mind. Constantly. I think what the issue is that in the past century, we have started comparing our leadership too much to Maharaja Ranjit Singh, who was a one-man show. But where Ranjit Singh failed and Kapoor Singh succeeded was that Ranjit Singh bred a sense of entitlement among his successors. That, you know, I'm the Maharaja, you're the, you know, Maharaja's progeny, his ayas, his, uh, you know, successors. Take what you want because you're entitled to it. On the other hand, if you look at Kapoor Singh, Kapoor Singh was someone who never actually bred that sense of entitlement among his uh, successors, among the people who he wanted to make leaders. He always bred a sense of humility among them. Humility in the true sense, not the, the way it is applied today. And another thing I'll point out down here is, and this one's going to be pretty damn controversial for some people, but consider the fact that the Sikhs are in a minority, but Kapoor Singh was so conversant with the Khalsa ethos, what Sikhi was, that he never made a non-Sikh missile. So you're telling me he didn't believe in diversity? I'm saying he believed in diversity, but as long as it was under strict <laughs> Sikh control, the Sikhs were to be dominant in the political life of the Punjab. That was his aim. The Sikhs would have the final say, yes or no. Yep, this is our way. Join us or leave us. Join us or leave us, but you would be under our Sharon. You will be under us. We will have the final word. And we will deliver justice. We will. Kapoor Singh was pretty unabashed about it. I mean, today, you, I mean, <laughs> today we are having debates whether we should allow non-Sikhs into Gurdwara committees. And you look at the character of, you know, such a high performers like Nawab Kapoor Singh, who only made it a Sikh, only Raj, Khalsa Raj, because only the Sikhs could deliver it and no one else. Well, of course, uh, this is our way. This is what what we do. You know, we have been fighting battles. We have been you know, getting our own family members killed. 
just to give you the reins of our own future. <laughs> it makes no sense. Gurdwara committee is it's a it's a Sikh Gurdwara. If, if you're not a Sikh, don't establish your own. Who's stopping I you? I mean, that's the problem with the Dilsa Fidioxi, which is pretty much uh, on a very high level today. I mean, Sikhi provides this way of life. Sikhs don't discriminate. Fine, then we'll accept that. Sikhs do longer. We accept that. A non-Sikh doesn't do that. So why would a non-Sikh be allowed to enter into Sikh ranks of power? What right do they have to enter Sikh ranks of power? You know, it's the same thing that that we have heard over and over that there are so many men who are like the CEOs and everything. It's okay, start your own company and become the CEO. No, 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 I don't want to do that. Make me CEO of your company. (laughs) That's the thing. That's the thing. You've got a point. You've got a very strong point down there. Now, Nwab Kapoor Singh's last battle transpired when he actually freed uh, those women and children from Mir Manu's capture. That was his great battle. After that, he surrendered. Uh, Are we having a connection issue over here? Because I can't hear you. Hmm. I cannot hear you. Basically, <clears throat> before we had that little technical issue that uh, would sort of cut us off, in 1753, Nawab Kapoor Singh finally passed away. But uh, before that, he had one last battle, and this was when the Khalsa attacked Mir Manu's uh, cellars to free the Sikh women and children he held therein. And it was really his last battle. And in a way, it probably... It was nothing out of the ordinary for a man like Nawab Kapoor Singh who had been fighting his entire life, but it was his last battle. And I guess it's a tribute to the mode of warfare he had preferred throughout his entire life. It was an ambush, a guerrilla tactic. Straight away, as Manu died, the Khalsa just swiftly smashed into his cellars and freed those women and children. Now, there is a significant pattern down here and uh do you know about this pattern given that you're so conversant with Sikh history as well well before we talk about it i think it's uh okay i think we should talk about his last battle a little bit more in detail because that i think that's important okay so we have the missiles now this is the first battle of the singapore missile so what we have is that lahore had emerged as an independent entity for some time until the Afghans came into India. And Mir Manu had, I guess, sort of, this is going to sound pretty uh, 
you know, sort of uh, miraculous, that Betelmir Manu had with the Afghans, you know what actually happened down there? His father was shot dead via cannon fire. And he actually uh, took his father's corpse and, if I understand correctly, stuck it up high on an elephant to convince the soldiers around him, the mercenaries, that, you know, the old man was alive. But he started directing those forces himself, saying his dad was sending him the instructions. Anyhow, Durrani, it's believed Ahmad Shah Durrani saw through that uh, entire uh, charade. But what happened was there was a massive explosion in Durrani's own camp. There was an accidental blast in his own camp. And the Afghans fled the field thinking that, you know, Manu had outflanked them. And ultimately, you know, Durrani, seeing that the battle was lost, he pretty much retreated as well. And this had, you know, obviously this had given Mir Manu's, uh, you know, allies a sense of superiority, even though Manu knew himself that only a massive coincidence had saved him. Nonetheless, Manu wasn't about, you know, becoming an ally of the Sikhs and then, you know, going after them. And this was the time when, you know, that song was uh, composed, Manu Sadida Triyasi Manu Desoy, Jeb Jeb Manu Barda. And okay, yep. So the translation is that you know, we the fodder manu the sickle, the more it cuts, the more we grow. Yep. Anyhow, Mir Manu had this habit of you know bringing Sikh women and children into Lahore, trying to convince them to convert to Islam. And if they didn't, he would actually, uh, before the woman were raped, he would actually have the kids butchered into pieces and, you know, put around their uh, necks to sort of, you know, convince would-be Sikhs not to think about even converting to Sikhi. However, Nuab Kapoor Singh had the last laugh. Now, there are some qualities here which we need to acknowledge in Nuab Kapoor Singh, and I'll read out a little list, and I guess you tell me if I'm right or not. So obviously the first one is the exceptional organizer. Would you agree that he was exceptional organizer? History proves it. Yes. And one thing I guess we need to mention down here is that, you know, today we have this sacredness attached to our institutes. We don't want to reform them for, you know, optimal performance. Nuab Kapoor Singh took the standing Khalsa army from Banda Singh, made it into the Buddha Dal, Tarnadal, divided those further into 25 subdals, made them into missiles, and ultimately, he was always changing them throughout his life, depending on the circumstances and his reaction to them. Well, of course, the aim doesn't change us. The tactics do with the changing circumstances. That's right. Now, historically speaking, this is one of the first qualities or virtues of leadership being that exceptional organizer. Um, if you look at the life of Eisenhower, in his career for a long time, Eisenhower was never made a frontline officer. He had minimal combat experience when compared to other generals in the American forces in World War II. However, it was his organizational ability which allowed him to train a standing army which the states could set into World War II, which finally convinced the head command that this is the man we need to be leading the war effort out there in Europe. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower is only one. We have uh, we have Grant, we have Sherman. Let's go back into you know antiquity. We have Alexander the Great, we have Leonidas. It's 
it's this organizational ability. Being a leader isn't being like Jacinda Ardern and, you know, giving out rhetoric and, you know, making promises and drawing up dreams. Man, you need... <laughs> I was waiting for you. <laughs> you knew it was coming. You knew. You know, I, I held it. 100% yeah. I knew it was coming. I held it in for one week, given the fact that, you know, their popularity is slipping if you see the social media in New Zealand. Anyhow, as a leader, you actually have to get into the nitty gritty of being a leader and a foremost aspect of that is being a good damn organizer you know you have to organize stuff you have to be seen to be effectively organizing others because you know you have the main picture in your brain no one else they're only following your orders would you agree if i if i say that in such position position of power if you are not disciplined, you cannot be trusted. Yes, obviously, that's, that's the first one. To be a good organizer, to be anything, you need to be disciplined. You need to be able to master yourself. Manjite Jagjit. Manjite Jagjit. Very simple lesson. A very simple lesson from Gurbani that we don't understand. No, I mean, our lot are actually watching videos by Admiral McRaven where he's telling them to get up in the morning and make their own beds. And they're wondering, what does making your own bed have, you know, anything to do with living life? Fact is, the thing you can keep on doing over and over again, it's going to make you disciplined. And it's discipline which is necessary. I mean, Rehat Mariada is a discipline. Waking up early in the morning, hot or cold, rain or shine, you are waking up early in the morning. You know, you're beginning your day early. There is a discipline down there, even though it might not be the type of, you know, military discipline which you envision having one day, but you need to start off somewhere. Yep. So if I say discipline equals organization of your own life. And if you can organize your own life, you can organize others as well. See how, how all these things are beautifully interconnected. Hmm. <laughs> you need to really consider the the brain power of Baba Nanak, that intellect which organized Sikhi and made it so disciplined. Look at all these lessons which Baba Nanak had within him, which he gave to us. And rather than learn it straight from Baba Nanak, we are running around learning it from others today. You also have to remember that after a period of 250 years and more, these, these lessons were manifested right, in, right before our own eyes. They were, but we weren't in their lead to manifest them. We weren't the ones winning the race when they were manifested. Okay, so your next point. Next point, right. Now, this is another important one. Good judge of characters. He made commanders out of few prior veterans. So, I mean, if you look at it, the most significant military veteran he had from the Guru era, from the Banda Sangera, was only Baba Deep Singh. All the rest were tried, but not fully tested warriors. And this shows in his, uh, you know, organization of Buddha, uh, Buddha Dal and Tarnadal. Most of these commanders leading those subdals, they weren't as heavily experienced as other veterans. But they had the character, the aim, the ambition to 
and the attitude and the attitude to succeed in the mission which the Panth gave them. There is this this thing that I think it comes from uh, the art of war that uh, you win the war first and then you enter the battlefield. Yes, yes, you're right, you're right. You only initiate you only enter a conflict which you have already won. Willingly, I'd say. Willingly. And I guess one of the... You know, there is that uh, story that Sun Tzu had the emperor's concubine slaughtered because he was trying to teach them how to lead a military march and they never listened to him, so he had them executed at the time. And then he actually chose two who, you know, he researched about and there he was told that they have a lot of ability organizational ability and they're good judge of character. Now those concubines chose as their team leaders, other concubines who were uh, whose character they were very familiar with. This is quite important because you need to be a good judge of character in any leadership position. Any of them. And the, the story about Sun Tzu uh, slaughtering the concubines, it was, it was just, he was trying to discipline them and they were just not mm. listening. And so I mean, he disciplined he disciplined yep. them by, chop, by chopping off a few heads. Now, Kapoorson didn't need to chop off a few heads because heads were being chopped off anyway. So the stakes anyway. were high. Yep, stakes were pretty high up there. He pretty much told them, look, can you perform? I think you can perform. Do you think you can perform? And another thing you need to notice is there would have been quite a lot of prickly personalities among the Sikhs at the time eh, who wouldn't have wanted to listen to him. So he had to do this little dance to always get everyone alongside him. Well, they, were, they should have been, well, I, I say should have been. There would have been quite a few of those stubborn mules who just wouldn't listen. Just wouldn't listen or offer their own two cents, try talking over him. So there would have been a lot of competition. But ultimately what mattered for Nwab Kapoor Singh was out in the field of battle, casualties were minimized victories were maximized and those were the types of people he was looking for who could do that and those were the types of people he chose now coming on to the third point he was also very bold even though he was quite laconic he was bold and we can see this in his uh, organizational skill he actually did things which had no precedent which were never done before he was not scared to try the untested One, one example, please. Okay, so if you look at the fact, dividing the Khalsa into two dulls, then 25 sub-dulls, then making the missiles, is there any such example from Sikh history before Nuab Kapoor Singh that, you know, the Khalsa was divided into 25 missiles, etc., etc., with such a ranking, such a structure, so the Sikhs could rule over the Punjab? Well, uh, not in terms of politics, but there were 22 Manjia established by the Guru Sahib for Sikhi Prachar. Obviously, it was for Sikhi Prachar, but if you look at Kapoor Singh's terms, he had to fight battles, he had to do Prachar, he also had to do the political side of things. When hearts and minds establish a political institution, he had nothing to go off, no template or example to follow. Okay, so, so in a single sentence, we could say that he was politically and militarily innovative. Very, very innovative. And he will see the thing with being innovative is you also have to be willing to, you know, implement that innovation. Yep. 
And unfortunately, we don't have that in Sikh leadership today. No one's innovative is the first thing. If there is anyone innovative, they're too scared to be shouted down. Now, another point, he was very preemptive. Very, very preemptive. So a couple of steps ahead of the people surrounding him. And I guess this only happens when you actually sit down and think. You need to think now. Era a lot of this thing, you know, that's what they say, and they say, oh, look, there is no point in thinking. What that verse from the Japji Saab means is that if you want to get something done, fine, then think about it, how you will do it. But thinking is only 50% of the, you know, commitment to what you're doing. The other 50% is actually physically doing it. It doesn't mean that Sikhs should not be thinkers. Well, uh, we have we have talked about these things in, in terms of mistranslations of Qurbani. Mm-hmm, we have, but it's it's very crucial that we need to sort of always, you know, keep on reminding ourselves about that because our people don't know those things at all. Not at all. They, they just just can't bring them, themselves to do their own research. No. Now, that was another uh, example of his preemptiveness. Now, here's the thing: when the Khalsa finished building Ram Rani and reconstructing the Darbar Sahib after the Chota Kalukara. There was a Sarbat Khalsa. And the Tarnadal felt it prudent to finish off the fractured Mughals in Lahore. And what they were actually saying was that let's march to, march to Lahore, let's conquer Lahore. Now, the only time Nawab Kapoor Singh actually entered Lahore was one when he went to assassinate Sakarya, a bit before that when he decided to show Sikh power. And then afterwards, when he went to uh, free those uh, women and children from Mir Manu Sellers, he never actually conquered Lahore, if you understand what I mean. There was no need to conquer Lahore. See, because the thing which he told them that day at the Sarabat Khalsa was this, that a new threat was on the horizon. And they just looked at him and asked, what threat? And he said, Ahmad Shah Durrani. Durrani had more technological prowess. He had more men. He was famed as a very, uh, you know, maverick strategician. If the Khalsa attacked Lahore and conquered Lahore, it would be right in front of Durrani when he marched into the Punjab. It would be annihilated prematurely along with the Mughals. But if it waited it out, if it didn't conquer Lahore, Durrani could march into Lahore and wipe out the Mughals, and he would be doing the Khalsa a service by wiping out one foe. The Khalsa would only have him to deal with. Yep, and uh, yeah, when you say preempt, preemptive through the, this, this example, we prove it. <laughs> and that's the thing, I mean, the whore in his eyes was a worthless illusion. There was no need to conquer Lahore at that time. Because if they did, they would be stat- static rather than nomadic as they were. I mean, <clears throat> the guerrilla motor warfare had actually helped them so much he wasn't willing to sacrifice it just to make, you know, the Sikhs the masters of Lahore. <clears throat> and that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened around 1748. Right. So now we get to the fifth point. He was a radical thinker. <clears throat> a and radical the, thinker. Okay. Yeah, now, in, obviously. In yep. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, he was 
able to overlap civil and military roles with checks on both. I mean, as a commander, he never said that, you know, he never actually acted as, you know, my word is the final word. Do we adopt the strategy? No, I will let the more experienced guys deal with that, but I'll deal with the, you know, civil institute. He never conflated the ro uh, roles to the degree that he became, a, you know, dictator or a sort of a military emperor, if you will allow the term. Really, he knew that in the future, there would be a time when the civil and military roles would be very separate from each other. There would be a division. So you, you're telling me the, the, he understood the concept of separation of the church and state? Church and state, military and state. He understood those concepts very well. He knew that the military was there to defend the state, but the military wasn't the state itself. He didn't make the mistake of, uh, uh, it was Louis the 14th who said that, that I am France? I believe so. 14th or 15th? They were all Louis, so let's, let's say that the French king Louis said that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was exactly the mistake which Napoleon ended up making, and ultimately it cost him a lot. And on the other hand, the only other parallel I can find with Nawab Kapoor Singh was Frederick the Great when he took over Austria. Even though it was said in the Western world at the time that Austria is a country where the military runs the state, it was the other way around. The state ran the military, but the military was so damn effective, it was believed that the military was running the state. <clears throat> I thought it was the Prussians, an army with the state, and today it's Pakistan. Prussians, oh, yes, Pakistan army with the state, yes, when Prussia conquered Austria. Now, sixth point, he was a big visionary. He realized Sikhs needed a grassroots power base rather than only military acumen to be able to rule the Punjab. And this is where the missiles came from. So I mean, in, okay, okay, yeah. hold on. For our American and Canadian listeners, yep. this explained beautifully. Hmm. The railroads came first, and then came the settlements. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so, well, what are you getting at? I mean, explain in your words what you're getting at. So, the, there has to be a structure in place before you actually build something on it. The foundations were laid. The structure, <clears throat> the beautiful structure was built later. That's the thing. I mean, if you look at the fact the Mongols under Genghis Khan, the military, the military was on a conquering mission. It was conquering, 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 and further conquering just to feed itself until someone told them, why didn't you guys just settle down in one place and make an empire so you can tax people? Yeah, well, they had the Silk Route. We didn't. That's the thing. There's no point in having a military and all this fighting acumen if you're not able to implement institutes to rule. Yep. I mean, it wasn't all war and uh, blood with Nawab Kapoor Singh. He was thinking way ahead at the time. Now, number seven, he was very restrained. And I gave you the example of him refusing to attack Lahore. Now, <clears throat> this mentality, I want to... I guess dissect down here is the mentality of groupthink. That's a mentality which has destroyed quite a lot of Sikh aspirations in the current period. And what I mean by groupthink is, uh, group is, you know, when there is high group cohesiveness, high pressure to make a good decision, 
strong, persuasive leadership, and this would be, you know, within the people who were saying they wanted to attack Lahore. And this is what leads to what the German social scientist Elizabeth Noel Newman calls the, spir the spiral of silence, that there is a group spotting one course of action. So people who do not spot it, who can see problems with it, they believe they're in a minority, so they stay quiet. Now, <clears throat> Dwab Kapoor Singh wasn't the one who was going to be the quiet one. He wasn't in a, even though he was in a minority, he had the rhetoric, the skill, the speaking skill to actually show people where they were going wrong. Look at how he beautifully exposed the flaw in the attack Lahore scheme. <clears throat> yep. That was, that was one of his actually... Uh, bigger skills. I mean, he was the type of person who would sit down there and always point at the negative, but he would do it in such a way that people would feel that it was positive criticism. He knew how to give criticism. Oh, well, it did, yeah. <clears throat> Constructive criticism. And obviously, I guess this was also reflecting uh, refle a reflection of another virtue he had, which was his courage. The ability to call out someone's, oh, his own side if it was in the wrong. And this is something your leadership today can't do, can it? Well, <clears throat> man, I want to stay alive, so I don't want to say much because I live in India. <laughs> I, I understand your sentiment. I understand your sentiment. But the fact <laughs> is, I mean, you need that courage, don't you, to call out your own side if it's going wrong. No, nah, better, I better move back to New Zealand and just live there. And even though Jacinda <laughs> is useless, she, she won't send her mercenaries back out now. <laughs> to take care of me? I guess the last point I would actually say would be communication. To be able to convince people, the masses, Sikhs and non-Sikhs alike of his vision, Nwab Kapoor Singh would have had to be an excellent communicator. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. And you need to remember this was a time when, you know, he would have been giving speeches, big speeches. So speaking in, you know, crowds, about 50,000, 80,000 and how many more, it's just amazing that he was able to convince a majority or what he was trying to do, what his vision was, that to me indicates that this was a man, a Sikh, a Gur Sikh, who had perfected himself, who constantly perfected himself. Well, yeah, oh, yeah. This is this is something very basic. If you if you if you are no, if you if you're known to these uh, these points of leadership that. Uh, the circumstances around you, they are constantly changing. You constantly have to improve yourself. I mean, imagine the day when he refused to attack Lahore. Someone would have gotten up with, you know, brandishing all these swords and Ajasi Lahore, they put Hamla Kardena, Ajasi Inna Hajar Mughal Bardena, Ajasi Unda Hajar Mughal Bardena, Chakke Leayo Te Nada Jobi Kama, Ekardamage Pate Chakdamage, Kabra Opania Tiara Kana, maybe Batere Mahanea. And everyone going, and then Kapoor Singh gets up. And imagine how effective his words would have been that the other side would have just retreated in shame. Now, imagine that if somebody in India try, tries to make a TV series about this. <laughs> I mean, the first thing we would have is we would have Kapoor Singh looking like Gandalf, and that would be the first thing. 
imagine all those drum beatings and all those how, how do you say cut scenes just just zooming in and out are you face real quick i mean one of those uh, those dramatic scenes those dramatic flashes and pants <laughs> <laughs> you know from kapoor singh's face to someone else's face to someone else's face to someone else's face i mean <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, they would have to include the faces of the horses as well. Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, they would have hit. They, they were, I mean, to be honest, the Indian TV industry, the Indian media industry has cannibalized Sikhi to the extent that, I mean, they should just stick to the Norsa serials and just leave history alone, even their own history as well. <laughs> or it it could be that maybe in the future somebody could make uh, an animated series yeah i mean when you make a an animated series it's just a, you know this is a bit of a digression but i'll say something which the listeners will appreciate as well we had one animated movie on banda singh bahadur in late 2006 right then uh, uh yeah we had for the probably next decade all these animated movies on banda singh bahadur it's the same thing with pagasing in bollywood uh, one one guy makes a movie about pagasing and everybody is pagasing suddenly i mean back in the day rajkumar santoshi wanted to make one with ajay devgan but sunny deol ne to bach latti hadati na i mean this one was the worst one out there to be honest now let's just hope these guys don't start cannibalizing sikh history again but if you yeah. look at if you look at what we were initially discussing look at the rhetoric and the passion kapoor singh would have you know actually possessed to be able to get up and shout down the excited warmongers will not shout them down but convince people with his logic that these guys have got it wrong yep through his leadership through his vision and through his understanding simply say okay it's not worth it we are not doing it i mean i believe this would have been an individual a leader who would have chosen his words very carefully at each and every cornerstone of his life you and i are just two kids talking about our own history yeah yes to truly understand that how great these people were a listener or an average sikh has to talk to himself or herself mm-hmm. yeah no that's right that's right yeah so you, you, you try to understand that who this person was nawab kapoor singh what he mm. did why he did what were the consequences how he did things and what difficulties he faced and you can actually apply every single one of these lessons and every single one of the points you have made today to your own mm. life you can i mean <clears throat> one of the main things i'll actually say down here is that currently today many sikhs feel that they're stuck in positions where they can't be of benefit to the panth you know it isn't necessary that you go to university and do a degree in law or you know you do a degree in science or leadership or political leadership and you you know become a mp and start fighting for your community in parliament i mean in new zealand all the sikh mps we have had have been useless i'm i'm putting this out there they have managed completely to do nothing useless. completely useless they're just there as token presence that's what i believe you know just a bit of a minority exhibition out there Yeah, just to collect your votes mate just to collect your votes now going back to another issue though coming back 
Nwab Kapoor Singh was someone who was pretty much a stable boy, to be honest. Yeah, that's where it started, mm-hmm. yeah. That's where he started. He started from the stables, started from sweeping the dung, went up to controlling the organization of the stables. Now, to be honest, it wasn't exactly a prime role for becoming a leader. I mean, let's look at it this way from Guru Gobind Singh Ji onwards. We have, you know, Sikh leaders who are tried and tested in the field of battle, who have actually, you know, dominated the battlefield. Nwab Kapoor Singh never dominated the battlefield. Today, the Nihangs are a bit different to what they were historically. I mean, Nihang was just a rank. And his was the lowest rank among a Nihang. He was just a common cavalry soldier or even a, I mean, yes, that's what he was, a common cavalry soldier, nothing more. Yet, if you stick to your vision, if you stick to who you are, if you're honest with yourself, he was honest with himself and look what it got him. He became Nuab of the Panth. And look at the precedent he established, the you know examples, the cornerstones he laid down, the path he established for us, that all these years later we have to admit that after him we had no significant leader who actually thought about the Panth as a political entity which should be long-lasting. Well, sadly, nobody did. It's, it's a massive tragedy. I mean... Why his life has been extinguished, why that legend of Kapoor Singh has been extinguished, there's a strong reason here. He lived for what he believed in. He was ready to die for what he believed in, but he lived for it. Reason number one. Today, it's some sort of uh, imperative calculation on our parts that if we have a strong leader, he should die for what he believes in and not live for it. Well, dying has absolutely no importance in Sikhi. I mean, if Nawab Kapoor Singh had decided to make a last stand in the Chota Kalukara, where would we, would we be today? Uh, you and I were probably greeting each other, probably saying Aslam Walaikum. Or Ram Ram, pretty much. <laughs> oh, not exactly Ram Ram. There was a bigger possibility of Aslam Walaikum. And because he survived, can we really call him selfish? Of course not. And today when we talk about leadership in the Sikh context, I mean, who are we holding up as examples? Come on, tell me, who do we hold up as examples? People who are able to get up on stage and talk big and, you know, threaten to rain down fire and brimstone. But when it comes to the catch, we are ready to say that these people died for the calm and the panth. But did they ever leave a good leadership behind to maximize on the sacrifices they made? So these people died for the Panth, but the question is, did they live for the Panth? That's the thing. If you're a leader, you need to appreciate your own role. Yeah, well, when you're dead, you're dead. That, that's the thing. Yeah. When you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> Yeah, when you're alive, you need to do do something when you're alive. The point of life or the point of Sikhi is not to die a glorious death. It's to do something in your life that you should live on in other people's memory. Or you could try to do that. That's the thing. Anwab Kapoor Singh never conceded on Sikhi. He's, the, he's that one leader in Sikhi, in Sikh history, who never had any stain put on his record. 
even by the enemy even by the enemy such was his metal i mean today we have nawab kapoor singh's picture in a few gurdwaras in the langar hall and the kids are calling him baba deep singh <laughs> how how would nawab kapoor singh be feeling today when he sees this uh well uh well that's an entirely different topic uh, the, the the kids and the sikhi but yeah well he wouldn't be feeling too good about it but uh, i guess he would be indifferent because uh, these things shouldn't get in his aim because you know what the one thought running in his mind would be today what is it main ta karke dikhata jo main karke dikhona si main ta sikhi sambhli hun putro tusi dasso tusi hun ki karna age well uh, isn't yelling a jikara enough <laughs> isn't now this brings me to another point we have so many people today saying we had guru maharaj's darshan nawab kapoor singh never had any darshan yet today we cry to have the darshan of a leader like him it's, it's quite ast- astonishing guru sahib appeared to you and you chose to do nothing about it you chose to do nothing about it that's a tragedy how low have we fallen and i'll say one thing in conclusion <clears throat> to cap it all off it's very easy today to say that nawab kapoor singh was a leader but there was a society behind him as well a family there would have been a wife children there was a whole people behind nawab kapoor singh and this was the you know these were the sikh people what is the difference between today's sikhs and those sikhs they were able to produce someone like nawab kapoor singh and today we are crying to have someone like him what would be the difference they had, they had characters we have tractors you're right they have characters we have tractors they were surme but we only have the sound stage they were surme in the true sense They would serve me in the true sense. I mean, look at it this way. I mean, I was, today I was actually, my neighbor <clears throat> is, you know, from the Punjab. And he was listening to a song today, uh, something going like, uh, it was a girl singing that song. And I was sitting there wondering, <laughs> you know, that, like, find that if, if the guy doesn't want to marry you, <laughs> I mean think about it I mean this the stupidity we have I mean okay Nawab Kapoor Singh's time gurdwaras were a place for meeting ground today gurdwaras are places for a MMA belt uh occasional sword fighting as well occasional sword fighting as well gatka khelde khelde ek do jete bhi fare kar dende you know you know Nawab Kapoor Singh envisioned such a grand state or, or or a seek future and today we are like i've brought my kara can i wear it again i've dropped my kara can i wear it again yep oh i ate some biscuits with eggs in them does this mean that i've done a bujar kret <laughs> a simple question i've dropped my kara can i wear it again <laughs> <laughs> But I'm I'm going to say one thing down here I know I'm going to be hitting a hornet's nest but 
ਇੱਕ ਗੱਲ ਸੁਣ ਲਓ ਜਿਹੜੇ ਸੁਣਦੇ ਆ ਬਾਹਰਲੇ ਬੱਚੇ ਖਾਸ ਕਰਕੇ ਪੰਜਾਬੀ ਚ ਮੈਂ ਗੱਲ ਕਹਿਣ ਲੱਗਾ ਆਪਣੇ ਮਾਪਿਆਂ ਨੂੰ ਵੀ ਸੁਣਾ ਦਿਓ ਮੇਰੇ ਤਾਂ ਕੋਈ ਲਤਬਾ ਕੋਈ ਸਨ ਕੀ ਭੰਨ ਨਹੀਂ ਚਲੋ ਜਿਹੜੇ ਸ਼ਹੀਦ ਹੋਏ ਆ ਨਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਸਿੰਘਣੀਆਂ ਉਸ ਸਮੇਂ ਦੇ ਅਗਲਿਆਂ ਦੀ ਦਸਤਾਰਾ ਵੀ ਲੱਥ ਜਾਂਦੀਆਂ ਸੀਗੀਆਂ ਲੱਤ ਮਾਰ ਕੇ ਦਸਤਾਰ ਲਾ ਦਿੰਦੇ ਸੀ ਅਗਲੇ ਦੀ ਕੇਸ਼ ਖੁੱਲ ਜਾਂਦੇ ਸੀ ਅਗਲੇ ਦੇ ਬਥੇਰੇ ਜਿੰਦੇ ਵੀ ਹੋਣੇ ਭਾਈ ਤਾਰੂ ਸਿੰਘ ਵਰਗੇ ਜਿਨ੍ਹਾਂ ਦੇ ਕਕਾਰ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਤੋਂ ਖੋਲੇ ਗਏ ਆ ਸਿੱਖੀ ਪਰ ਅੰਦਰੋਂ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਦੇ ਝਮਕੀ ਜਦੋਂ ਕਕਾਰ ਉਹਨਾਂ ਦੇ ਖੋਲੇ ਗਏ ਆ ਤਾਂ ਤੁਸੀਂ ਦੇਖ ਲਓ ਇੱਥੇ ਕੀ ਕਿਹੜੀ ਚੀਜ਼ਾਂ ਪਿੱਛੇ ਰੋਂਦੇ ਫਿਰਦੇ ਆ ਇਟ ਗੋਸ ਫੋਰ ਅਸ ਐਸ ਵੈਲ ਇਟ ਗੋਸ ਫੋਰ ਅਸ ਯੂ ਆਲਸੋ ਹੈਵ ਟੂ ਰਿਮੈਂਬਰ ਥੈਟ ਇਨ ਦ ਬੈਟਲ ਫੀਲਡ ਯੂ ਮਾਈਟ ਹੈਵ ਲੋਸਟ ਲੈਟਸ ਸੇ ਅ ਲੋਟ ਆਫ ਹੇਅਰ ਨੋ ਸਮਬਡੀ ਸਲੈਸ਼ਸ ਯੂ ਅਕਰੋਸ ਦ ਫੇਸ ਹਾਫ ਯੂਰ ਬੀਅਰਡਸ ਗੋਨ ਐਕਚੁਅਲੀ ਆਈ ਓਨਲੀ ਥੋਟ ਆਫ ਥੈਟ ਨਾਓ ਨੋ ਯੂਰ ਰਾਈਟ ਯੂਰ ਰਾਈਟ yeah and not not just that so it means there was an endless cycle of just sikhs going to take amrit over and over again every single day hmm now i guess to cap it off would you have a message for the listeners because i've received a question how can we be like nawab kapoor singh today man okay what i can say is that since we have discussed it for over an hour now try to listen to, to this podcast podcast and try to listen to it more than once or twice hmm. understand the life lessons you can draw from that particular person nawab kapoor singh and try to implement it in your own life that's that's the very first thing that's that's the first thing second thing and i'm i'm not saying this as a joke surround yourself with good books good company and not that there are pandu type you know this ashki type this pundashik type surround yourself with the type of people who you want to be surround yourself with the people who are on the same path as you same path as you that's all for today thank you very much for listening wahiguru ji ka khalsa wahiguru ji ka khalsa wahiguru ji ki